Good morning, church. It is uh, really good to be with you on this day, and I'm praying that God would be giving you a hunger for His Word and what He would want to say to you today uh, through His Word. It is not primarily, um, it, it is certainly not primarily what I have to say today, but what, ha- but what He has to say to us through His Word. And I'm praying that your heart wherever it has been in the last few moments, that it would now be at a place ready to hear from him. I want to set the stage for this unit, this chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, especially for those of you that are visiting or haven't been here the last few weeks. What we saw in the text last week, in last week's passage, is this superpower, the Philistines, who have all the weaponry and have all the numbers, and they were the oppressor, and they are ready to take over and take out Israel. And we saw this this great victory that began with just two people, Jonathan and his armor bearer, taking out 20 of the elite soldiers, if you will, of the Philistines. And after that, a victory that involved some rock climbing and some other things. It was an exciting passage for, for me. Uh, God goes even above and beyond that and does some more extraordinary things. And let's just take a look at that briefly from last week, verses 20 through 23. So hopefully you have your device open or your Bible open. Look with me at chapter 14 and verse 20. It says, Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to battle. This is right after the 20 have been taken out by the two. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. (laughs) The enemy are striking one another with their swords. Verse 21, those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines had gone up with them to their, uh, that had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Uh, to, To summarize that verse, the traitors came back to Israel. People had betrayed Israel and had gone over to the Philistines and they've heard what's going on and they're like, hey, let's go back home. And they did. This is really good stuff. Verse 22, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So again, all the people that had been hiding in holes and we don't want to be a part of this getting slaughtered by the Philistines. All of those people have come out of hiding and they have joined the Israelite army and the troops. Verse 23, so the Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. So as we set the stage for the, today's unit, which begins at verse 24, what we would expect at this point, if you're reading this passage, what we would expect would be a time of thanksgiving, Um, A a brief time of thanksgiving, a brief time of celebration, a a brief feast of something incredible, acknowledging uh, something to celebrate, this incredible thing that God has done in giving them victory. That is what the reader would be expecting here. But after this God-given victory, we see something uh, not at all like a feast or a time of thanksgiving or an offering to God. Saul calls a fast. And why would he call a fast instead of a feast? And that is, in many ways, the central question that you and I as a reader should be asking as we go through this 
unit of Scripture today. Why is he calling a fast instead of a feast? So let's turn back to our text and, and just look at verse 24 as we begin today's unit. It says, now the men of Israel were in distress that day. And the opposite of what we would be expecting, this rejoicing over all of this has just happened. The men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people or the troops. All throughout the unit today, as you read people, it could be translated people, but we're talking about the army. We're talking about troops. Because Saul had bound the troops under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the troops tasted food. So let's just pause here for a moment and, and think about this for a moment. Why is Saul calling for a fast right after this great victory and as the battle is about to continue? Now, you probably don't know a lot about ancient Near Eastern battle techniques and traditions, but there would often be a fast before you went into battle to, to get your mind focused and to, to be ready for that. But this is after the big victory and, and the momentum is on their side. So why is Saul calling for this fast? Look back at verse 24 with me. I've circled a couple words in my Bible near the end of verse 24 where, Paul, where Saul says, before I have avenged myself. Church, does it sound like Saul is thinking about the glory of God and honoring him and celebrating him? Or I have the I circled and myself circled. Does it sound like Saul is thinking about his own glory and his own honor? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the latter, right? So Saul wants to be the commander-in-chief who gets glory for wiping out the superpower, which is, seems to be, it's already happened, and it seems like it's just going to continue. And so he has ordered this fast instead of a feast. And the reader's response here should be one of, this is not a good thing to do at this point, a fast instead of a feast. The idol of power and the idol of self-glory is what we are going to see throughout today's unit in Saul's heart. And he has called for a fast, something that is very good in this day and in that day. A fast is a good spiritual discipline, but not in this context and not in this setting. What is going on here? is Saul's excessive attachment to power and to self-glory in the place of God getting glory. Jesus deals with these same idols in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, take a look on the screen at this passage with me. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you? This authority. So this is quite a setting. We have the pastors of the day, if you will, the religious leaders of the day, asking the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So Jesus replies, as he often does, not with an answer, but with a question. 
he does this quite often because Jesus is more interested in the hearts of human beings than he is in data or facts or these sorts of things. So he responds with this question. On the screen, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So here's the question he asks. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven, which is a respectful way of saying, is it from God, or is it from men? Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? This is his question in response to their question. So they discuss it among themselves, and they say, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? If John the Baptist was actually from God, which they know that he was, um, why why, why don't we believe him? They're saying, well, we didn't believe him because we don't want the people following Jesus. We want them following us. And we can't tell them that we can't tell Jesus that John the Baptist is from God or from heaven because we did not listen to him. They are excessively attached to the idol of power. So that's why they're not going to answer that one that way. So, but, and then they said, well, the other way, if we say he's from men, we, the pastors of the first century, if you will, are afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. They saw who John the Baptist was. And these leaders, they want to get glory themselves from their, from their power and positions of authority. And they actually have this authority in these offices. And the people listen to them and follow them. And they don't want to lose that. So they're not going to say that John the Baptist is from man. So they answered Jesus, we don't know, they said. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. They were not asking a genuine question. They were completely committed to their idols of power and of self-glory. And this is what the careful reader is observing in the life of Saul in today's unit of Scripture. Now, we need to be careful at this point because our tendency, my tendency at least, I won't speak for all of you, is to be like the Pharisees and to think, well, I don't have issues of of, of power or self-glory, but I want to suggest that we do. And so we want God's Word to speak to us about this answer to this question, why of Uh, a fast instead of a feast, or why a feast instead of a fast, however we want to put the question. The, The answer that Saul has a fast instead of a feast is because of his longing to have power and authority and acclaim and have everyone looking to him as the commander-in-chief, instead of, at this point, looking at Jonathan and looking at his armor-bearer. And Jonathan and his armor-bearer and the others are pointing to the Lord. And then God does this amazing thing where the Philistines are, are fighting each other. Obviously, God was behind that. So Saul is in competition with God for glory. And so, if we are reading this text rightly, we should be thinking about our own selves. And when is it that you, when is it that I want glory instead of giving it to God? So that's verse 24. Let's come back to the text here and look at verses 25 through 27. So he calls for this fast. And then verse 25, the entire army entered the woods and there was honey 
on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. Let me just pause here for a moment. So this is a divine, I don't know if we want to call this a miracle, but I mean, this is, there is honey oozing out. Now, honey was a delicacy in that day. It was a luxury. It was something awesome. And, but the extent to which this is oozing out right after this victory in battle is communicating the sweet providence of God that he has provided this for these soldiers just as they go into the woods where there's cover and they're about to engage in more battles on the other side of the woods. But Saul, in his pride and in his idolatry, has called for this fast so they don't, they don't enjoy this honey. So you might need to think of something else if, if honey isn't something really appealing to you. I mentioned um, a few weeks ago an affogato. Do you guys remember that? And I got a few texts from people that were confused, like, what is an, an affogato? So, so, yeah, some of you looked it up. So, affogato is this, this beautiful mixture of, of ice cream and espresso and just the right combination. And, uh, man, it is, it is really good. And so this, is, this honey is this God-provided dessert, this treat that the reader here sees. It's an incredible victory of God. They go into the woods, and there is this honey uh, produced by bees, all oozing out of the floor. So uh, I hope you're, you're getting the sense of what's going on here. And I think we're, we're at 27, right? Verse 27. So let's come back to the text. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. His eyes brightened. I love that description. So this is what should be happening. So as, as you read through this text, the reader's going, this is what God has set up to give refreshment to the exhausted soldiers after they've come out of the, the woods and out of the holes from hiding as they've crossed from the enemy lines, those who had betrayed Israel and gone over to the Philistines, they have run back. They've been in these battles and they, God has given them a supernatural victory and now he's given them this honey. Jonathan is unaware of the fast that his father has called King Saul. And so he raises his hand to his mouth and his eyes are brightened. He's refreshed. This is what should be happening. Throughout the Bible, honey is used as this, this thing that is so sweet. In Psalm 19, it says, The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So Jonathan alone gets to experience this because he's not aware of the oath of the fast that has been called by his father. Looking back at the text, notice it says that he, uh, he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand. And it's interesting, as you read the commentaries on this, uh, several commentators point out that he probably didn't want to get stung by bees, and so he's used his uh, staff uh, to get this honey. And I think that's probably right, but I think there's something else going on here. Uh, the author is telling us that uh, Jonathan didn't sit down and, and, and just stop. Uh, the, the, there's battles still to be fought. 
So he has kind of the best of both worlds, if you will. He has his honey and he's uh, eating it too. He, he, he grabs this honey, but he keeps moving. He doesn't sit down and, and, and stop. He knows that there's battles coming on the other side. And so, so he, he's on the move. And he takes this honey and he gets this uh, refreshment. So Jonathan delights in this precious wild honey, needing, uh, needing this refreshment. And, and the rest of the soldiers, the rest of the men, the rest of the troops are, are not getting that. Let's come back to the text and look at verse 28 through 30. So then one of the soldiers told him, so here comes the bad news. Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. This is why the men are weary. Great victory, walking in the woods, honey everywhere, and they're not touching it. They are obeying their king who has made a foolish mandate, a foolish oath out of pride. Every one of them could be experiencing this refreshment, but instead they are weary and they are faint. Verse 29, Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. We call that truth-telling there. My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. Verse 30, how much better it would have been if the men had eaten today. Some of the plunder they took from their enemies would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater. So there are still Philistines out there, Jonathan is letting us know. And it was a common practice in, military, uh, in the military world and in, in ancient Near East that if you conquered a people that you would take some of the plunder and you would eat right then and there. And so Jonathan is courageously saying, not only has my father caused trouble, but he should have endorsed and authorized eating some of the food of those that they have uh, taken. So we see in verses 28 through 30 that Jonathan learns of Saul's foolish and selfish oath. And the reader is is clued in to what is going on here, that this wasn't a godly fast, this wasn't a God-glorifying fast, that he has made trouble for the country. That's 28 through 30. Let's uh, continue on. Let's look at verse 31 and following. That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines, from Michmash to Ahijalon, they were exhausted. Verse 32, they pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone, and this is important, this little phrase, then someone said to Saul, Saul should have noticed the problem here, but he doesn't, so someone lets him know. So the reader is being clued into here the the spiritual cluelessness of the commander-in-chief, the leader of Israel, King Saul. So someone says to him, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. So what is going on here is one thing that is very clear in the word of God for the ancient Israelite. Uh, Genesis, going back to Genesis 9-4, take a look at it on the screen. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, uh, its blood. We don't have to, time today to go into the reasons for this. But it is absolutely forbidden to eat 
animals whose blood is still in there. And so what, what is going on here? Let me just kind of summarize what's going on. So the sun has set, so the oath has expired at sunset. That's when the next day begins in ancient Near Eastern society. And so they pounced on the plunder. These guys are starving and they're ravished. Now that's not to excuse their violation of God's word, but again, the careful reader here is saying, why are they in this situation? They're in this situation because the commander-in-chief put them in this situation. This is why they are starving. That doesn't give them an excuse to disobey God's word, but that is what they have done. Saul's self-serving law about the fast contributes to the violation of God's law. Well, let's come back to the text here. We're in the middle of verse 33. So here's what Saul says when someone points this out to him. He says, you have broken faith. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you, bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord, by, against, the Lord against Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, by eating meat with blood still in it. So Saul's been made aware that that's what they're doing, and now he's telling them not to do it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. So there's another clue. This is the first time Saul has built an altar to the Lord, that someone had to point it out to him to do this. It's something that this leader should have probably done many times just in the course of events, have, have built an altar to the Lord, but this is the first time he's done it. And just a little more background here, they would do this so that the blood would go off of the stone and there, it's not mentioned, but there would be cooking, there would be a fire. He's basically saying, hey, let's do this right. Let's do this right. But one, one of the main things that you and I should observe here is that what has been observed is man's law, Saul's law. What has not been observed is God's law, God's word. So one of the main takeaways from here is to prioritize the actual words of God and not man-made or man-manufactured rules that we might put on top of those. That is what we have going on here in this passage. Let's come back to the text here. You guys tracking with me today? Okay. So let's look at 36 and 37. So, so Saul has, has done something good here. He's corrected the, these favished men that he's partially responsible for. He, he's, he's put in order a way that's God-glorifying in, in the way to, to eat and enjoy this after his, his time of fast has ended. So then verse 36, Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Saul wants to finish the job. He is wanting his own glory. He's wanting not his son Jonathan and the armor bearer and the Philistines themselves. He's wanting this glory for himself. And look at the response of the soldiers, of the men. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. And we're going to see this again. This is a polite way of saying we're going to respect the office. Um, we don't think that we should try and take out the rest of the superpower tonight before dawn comes. That's what they're saying without saying it. Do whatever seems best to you. 
So that's what the men say, but then there's a priest nearby. So the priest says to Saul, let us inquire of God here. (laughs) Maybe we should pray. Maybe we should ask God about whether we should rest tonight or whether we should go and try to finish the job and take out the superpower. Verse 37, so Saul asked God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. God is not for what Saul is trying to accomplish right now in this way, at this time, and in this place. So God did not answer Saul. So Saul's uh, self-serving law contributes to the violation of God's law. I've already mentioned that. What we're looking at now in 36 and 37 is this, and this is important. A common misconception to understand X to be God's will when it is actually self-will. To understand that God wants me as commander-in-chief, Saul, to take out the rest of the Philistines tonight with this army before dawn comes, that is Saul's will. And he misunderstands it to be God's will. It is a self-will. This is an important misconception. Can't I confess to you, I have made this error, this misconception many times in my own life thinking this is God's will, when this is really Mike's will. This is what Mike thinks is God's will. This is what I think is supposed to happen. And if I may be so bold to suggest, you have done the same thing. So as we read this passage, one of the most important takeaways is that you and I have a tendency to to mistake what I want and what my will is for actually God's will. That's what we have going on here. Uh, Logicians call this uh, the fallacy of, of wishful thinking. I want X to be true, therefore X is true. Here this is simply related to God's will. And it is an important principle for us to understand. So we need the help of others To see this, so you should be asking yourselves now, well, how do we discern whether this is my will, insert your name there, or whether this is God's will, or is this me thinking it's God's will, but it's actually my will? Well, that that could be a very long answer to that question, but let me just say uh, two things. One is we want to prioritize what the scriptures actually say, not what a person says or tells you, especially when that person has the kind of fruit in his life that Saul has. And it's very obvious that his oath was a foolish oath that he made, and that he is not speaking as a prophet. He's needed to, the priest has needed to interrupt him, the people have needed to speak to him, they're going to, the army, they're going to speak to him again. So that's one thing. Prioritize the word of God And then secondly, we also want to discover whether this is my will or whether this is God's will. We want to look for people where we see the fruit of the gospel and we see the fruit of God around people's lives. And we want to ask their input. And this is especially helpful when they are outside of our circle. 
I'll share one brief situation with you where I thought God's will was this and, and it was actually Mike's will and, and God's will was, was something else. And I, uh, th- this involves Cornerstone. When we were moving from cool to here, we were looking at going, I was looking at going to a couple different churches. And I thought about going to a, a certain church. And I thought that was God's will. And I had in my mind and heart that I was going to go and serve as pastor at that church. And before I said yes to this, we're praying about this. One of the things, and this is a simplification of the story, but one of the important things I did is I called the man who baptized me so many years ago, who I hadn't talked to in a while, but a man, there's just godly fruit all around his life. His name's Pete. And uh, no kidding, his last name is Pagan. Pete Pagan. (laughs) You can laugh at that. Um, This godly man, his name's Pete Pagan. Is that funny? Not really. Sorry, sorry. A little bit funny. Say, just keep going, Mike. Just keep going. Um, So I call Pete Pagan, and I tell him the situation, and I'm pretty confident this is what I'm doing. And he says to me, so, so why are you, remind me again why, why, why God has called you away from, from cool. And I explain the situation and don't have time to go into all those details. And he says, and so it sounds like the place that you're going is actually very similar to the place that you're leaving. Is that right? And the position that you would be in is very similar. Yes, it is. So you're basically leaving a situation that, that's causing your family difficulties and you're going into another situation that is very likely to do the same thing. And so he said to me very gently that I think it's very likely that you need to go to this other place, which was Cornerstone Community Church, and he was right. And so there is a common misconception among believers to understand X to be God's will Um, when it's actually my will and we need to have our eyes opened either by God's word or by some godly person to to see through that. That's what we have going on in this passage with Saul. Let's come back to our text here, verse 38. Saul therefore said, um, so so God doesn't answer him. He he wants to go into into battle and, and, and finish them off in the night. So Saul therefore says, come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. And Saul is looking outside of himself as he's looking for the sin that has been committed. Why, aren't, why isn't God going to give us the Philistines? There's sin in the camp, is what Saul is thinking, and he's right. But he's wrong about where that sin is. Verse 39, as surely as the Lord lives, as surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives. Even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of the men said a word. So Saul's wrong-headed thinking here is that the sin, for the reason that God isn't giving us the Philistines tonight, lies with someone else. And I'm going to figure out who it is, and even if it's Jonathan, I'm going to take his life if he violated that oath. So this is... Suspense. Now the reader is told not one of the men said a word. Again, they're wanting to respect the office, but they are not with their king. They are not with the commander-in-chief in this situation. They are not with him. I want to pause here for a moment and say, um, how should a Christian read this particular passage? And I want to say that a Christian should read this particular passage to show where 
he or she should be diligent and where he or she shouldn't be diligent. Take a look with me at the screen in Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Saul is on a path where he thinks he's going to gain the admiration of everyone by taking out the Philistine army, by being the commander of chief, by being the commander in chief and leading the army in this way. But what Saul should really do, I understand he doesn't have Matthew, so I'm saying how we should read this passage. Saul should be in a place where he is denying himself what he wants. This is how a Christian should read this passage. That God's glory is what I'm after, not my own. And the Christian life involves denying me, myself, and what I want. D.A. Carson puts it this way. His commentary on Matthew. He says, any Jew in Palestine would know that the man condemned to crucifixion was often forced to carry part of his own cross, a burden and a sign of death. Death to self is not so much a prerequisite of discipleship to Jesus as a continuing characteristic of it. Death to self, death to self. This is what should be going on in our lives regularly, putting ourselves aside and looking to God and his glory instead of our own. Taking one's cross does not mean putting up with some awkward or tragic situation in one's life, but painfully dying to self. In that sense, every disciple of Jesus bears the same cross. Saul at this point should be dying to himself, but he has not died to himself. He is going full on for himself and for self-glory. Let's come back to the text here, verse 40. So none of the men said a word to him as he's trying to find out who is to blame here. So Saul, verse 40, says to all the Israelites, you stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you. There's another one of these responses, like, we're going to respect you as our king, but we're not with you. Do what seems best to you, King Saul, the army replies. Verse 41, then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, give me the right answer. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot. So they had this procedure. We won't go through it all right now, but they had this procedure. And and through this procedure, they realized no one out there is to blame. No one out there has the sin. It's either uh, Jonathan or Saul. So the men are cleared. Verse 42. So Saul says, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff. And now I must die. And my translation here has a question mark. Your translation may have a period. And that's probably a good thing because it's difficult to know how to take this. It's probably better to take it as a period. In other words, what Jonathan is probably saying here is, I merely tasted a little honey and now I am going to die and I am willing to die. I don't think this is an exclamation point, um, a question mark probably more than it's just, this is the reality of the situation. So we're at verse 44. So Saul doubles down. He says, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. 
This is tragic. This is terrible. He is ready to kill his son for violating an oath that was based on his own pride and his own selfishness. So we've looked at a common misconception to understand X to be God's will when it's actually our own will, self-will. And now we are looking at a common miscalculation. Diligence to what is not important and ignorance to what is important. What is important in this situation is that God has given victory. And he's chosen to give the victory through Jonathan and his armor bearer and through the earthquake and through all of this. And instead of giving thanks, instead of allowing them as they walk through the forest to gather some of the honey as they get ready to go potentially into the next battle, Saul is ignorant of all of that, but he is diligent about following the details of the man-made law about this fast that he should have never put out there in the first place. This is incredibly relevant to us in the year 2022. If you're not tracking with me right now, here's what I want to say. I mean, as I look over the last two years, and for the few of you that were with us at the Gospel Coalition Conference, the church has had a really hard time nationally these last two years with COVID and the pandemic and all of this stuff going on. And part of the reason, I don't have time to get into the details, you know them, but part of it is because there has been diligence in what is not important and not diligence in what is important. What is so important according to the word of God? Let me just tell you a couple of the things. What is so important? That we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we love our neighbors as ourselves. The gospel is of first importance. And what has happened and what has happened the last couple years is is, is churches have made political issues and and COVID stuff, either for it or against it, have, have made it just hugely important. And that same sort of thing is what we have going on in this passage. He is ready to kill his son, his godly, God glorifying, risk taking son over this oath. So this is incredibly relevant to our lives. Have you and I made miscalculations? Are we diligent to what is not important and ignorant to what is really important in life? Came across a man who was writing about this, his own... God showing him this as he looked over his life of discipling and, and uh, teaching his own children. Let me just read it to you. His name's Rick Shank. He's talking about what they did when they had children in the home. He writes this. He says, all through high school, we prioritized family dinner times, Saturday night pizza and video, but also just normal everyday dinners. Amazingly, we managed to be together for four or five meals a week, often more. Amen. It's a good thing, really good thing. Now I must confess that dinners were often a failure and it was my fault. I was often too hard on the kids and I am still grieved by that. I was too insistent about how they sat, drank, spoke with their mouth full, 
and even how they reasoned. This father with a PhD was overly critical of his children's reasoning at the dinner table. Too often I made dinners miserable, trying to teach them manners, I lost mine. In that, I denied God's grace. A common miscalculation among professors and followers of Jesus Christ is that we are really diligent in stuff that is not that important. Manners are good. Sitting up straight at the table is a good thing. But if we compare that to our children loving Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and us having good conversation at the dinner table, the, the sitting up straight is not in the same category. And the Lord has opened that man's eyes to that. And I'm sharing that because it is likely that there are folks here whose eyes need to be opened. That we've been very diligent in things that are not really that important. How are we loving our neighbors? Literally your neighbors. Uh, unless there's a clear reason in the text, take, take the text literally. Loving your literal neighbors is really important if you are a follower of Jesus. It is what he did. It is what he called us to. It is one of those main things. To love him is really important. Diligence to what is not important is what we see in this passage. Ignorance to what is important. God, open our eyes. Let's finish up here. We've got two verses left, 45 and 46. So we should be, this should be a movie. We should be on the edge of our seats. Jonathan's about to be killed. Saul doubles down. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. That's verse 44. 45. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? So notice that the soldiers move from, they've just been like respecting the office, but they step away from that now because a life is at stake. Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never! Now they make an oath. The army, the soldiers, the troops, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this for he did this today with God's help. They see that God was with Jonathan, and they see that God was not with Saul. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. This has a good ending here in many ways, especially for Jonathan. All sins, especially those of a leader, must be brought to the light. And they were very reluctant to criticize their king. To, to bring it to the light, but here they have to, and they do. And they save Jonathan's life. Last verse, 46. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. The very opposite of what Saul had intended to happen. We're going to finish them off tonight. But in light of all of this, self-focus, self-glory, the idol of power, 
In light of all that, they stop pursuing the Philistines and they withdraw Philistines to, to their own land. They're back. You choose your sin, but God chooses the consequences of your sin. The consequences of Saul's sin is that the enemy is now back in safe territory and they are not on the run because he had not put the covenant-keeping of God of Israel at the center of his work, of his job as commander-in-chief. And so the consequences are there. I heard a pastor uh, speak not long ago at a little pastor's gathering. I'll close with this today. And I'm so glad he spoke. I don't think I've ever had a pastor at a pastor's conference whose wife was there with him speak about his many decades ago sin of adultery with his wife there. This was not a normal conference. I've never heard this sermon. I will never forget many of the things he said. One of the things he said to us as pastors is, you can humble yourself before the Lord or he will humble you. And the latter one is much more painful. If God has to humble you, the Philistines are going to run into their territory and you're going to lose them. You may lose your church. You may lose your wife. So humble yourself before the Lord. This is what Jonathan and his armor bearer and what very reluctantly the soldiers were doing humbly serving their God who was giving them victory. And this is what he calls us to as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we sometimes are so confused. We think your will is X, and that's really just something that, you, that, that I've invented, that we've invented, and it's not your will. So Lord, after hearing this passage today, I'm praying for all of us to have discernment. I'm praying that we would have allegiance to your word much more than we would to a leader's oath or suggestion, particularly when that leader is of questionable character. Make us people who have great allegiance to the word of God. Lord, make us people who recognize that to live a happy and joyful life, it comes by humbling ourselves and following you, not by getting a victory at all costs and having power and the praise of man. These are the things that Saul was after, and they do not serve one well. Lord, help us to serve you and to glorify Jesus in all things, in all ways. We pray in his name. Amen.